The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Because the Lord is pleased with God's people, God will beautify the poor with saving help. Let the faithful celebrate with glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to get revenge against the nations and punishment on the peoples, binding their rulers in chains and their officials in iron shackles, achieving the justice written against them. That will be an honor to all God's faithful people. Praise the Lord. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama Envy, joined today by the wonderful uh, Pastor Kuma, a.k.a. Don, uh, Demo, and L. And thank you all so much for being here. Now, y'all are familiar with Don, Demo, and L. If you are not, go and stock them on the Discord and uh, get connected to all the things that they do. You'll see the connection to Don's Church Unfinished Community. It'll be in the space on the bottom of the episode. And, of course, through the link, you can always come and join the Llama Pack, an alternative church for people left outside of the church. Before we start the passage, I want to offer up that although this is a, we've been having a good time here, and we're having a good conversation, um, it's going to be a good conversation, but it's also going to be a difficult conversation. Uh, this is... Uh, just to give a trigger warning ahead of time, this story is about sexual assault and uh, the violence that accompanies that. And so uh, if that is not something you can handle at this point, please skip this one or come back later. But uh, just wanted to give that warning ahead of time. We'll go ahead and dive on in. Genesis 33, 18 through 34, 31. Jacob arrived safely at the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan on his trip from Padan Aram. And he camped in front of the city. He bought the section of the field where he pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred kesetals. Then he set up an altar there and named it El Eloi Israel. Dina, the daughter whom Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to meet the woman of that country. When Shechem, the son of Hivite Hamor, and the country's prince saw her, he took her, slept with her, and humiliated her. He was drawn to Dina, Jacob's daughter. He loved the young woman and tried to win her heart. Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get this girl for me as my wife. Now Jacob heard that Shechem defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with the animals in the countryside, so he decided to keep quiet until they got back. Meanwhile, Hamor, Shechem's father, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Just then, Jacob's sons got back from the countryside. When they heard what had happened, they were deeply offended and very angry, because Shechem had disgraced Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter. Such things are simply not done. Hamor said to them, My son Shechem's heart is set on your daughter. Please let him marry her. Arrange marriages with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is available to you. Settle down, travel through it, and buy property on it. Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, If you approve of me, tell me what you want, and I will give it to you. Make the bride price and marriage gifts as large as you like, and I will pay whatever you tell me. Then let me marry the young woman. Jacob's sons responded deviously to Shechem and his father Hamor because Shechem defiled their sister Dina. They said to them, We can't do this, allowing our sisters to marry uncircumcised men, because it's disgraceful to us. We can only agree to do this if you circumcise every male as we do. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves. We will live with you and be one people. But if you don't listen to us and become circumcised, we will take our daughter and leave. Their idea seemed like a good one to Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man didn't waste any time doing this because he liked Jacob's daughter so much. He was more respected than anyone else in his father's household. Hamor and his son Shechem went to their city's gate and spoke to the men of their city. These men want peace with us. Let them live in the land and travel through it. There's plenty of land for them. We will marry their daughters and give them our daughters. 
that the men will agree to live with us and become one people only if we circumcise every male just as they do. Their livestock, their property, and all of their animals, won't they be ours? Let's agree with them and let them live with us. Everyone at the city great agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem. So every able-bodied male in the city was circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Dina's brothers Simeon and Levi, took their swords, came into the city, which suspected nothing, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dina from Shechem's household, and left. When Jacob's other sons discovered the dead, they looted the city that had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their cattle, and their donkeys, whether in the city or in the fields nearby. They carried off their property, their children, and their wives. They looted the entire place. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've put me in danger by making me offensive to those who live here in the land, to the Canaanites and to the Perizzites. I have only a few men. They may join forces, attack me, and destroy me, me and my household. They said, But didn't he treat our sister like a prostitute? So this story is a difficult one, and part of the way that we as a podcast have often dealt with difficult things is by having a little bit of humor, right? <laughs> um, and so I expect that that's going to be the case in this conversation. Um, so let's not steer away from that. This story is directly related to the Man Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do tell. <laughs> in my study Bible, the way that Dinah, I'm going to call her Dinah because I like that better than Dina. The way that Dinah is quote unquote humiliated doesn't necessarily mean she was raped. It just means being put in a, well, based on the context of how much uh, Shechem like said he loved her and cared about her, it's implied that this was more of like a difficult moral situation for a virgin to be in, not necessarily that she was raped or like didn't want it like her agency is completely removed from the story just like most women's agency uh when a bunch of men are talking about a woman especially at the end but didn't didn't he treat our sister like a prostitute the man act and the chinese exclusion act were like responses to this moral panic about prostitution and that like immigrants were being brought into the country for prostitution, there's issues with race mixing, like being a moral panic, and like a big fear of like white women going into slavery, like sex slavery, which is like another moral panic that we're currently involved in. And all of the like language surrounding that very much vibes this weird passage where like, okay, they said they were upset on behalf of her honor, but they ended up killing and looting the entire city and taking what was good for themselves to the point where like now oh now they're scared for their lives oh no so that's my first uh impression when reading this story obviously there's multi-layers and there's a chance that Dinah really was sexually assaulted but that that's my immediate take from it what I want to focus on here in verse 2, and I'm going to read right from Alter's commentary here, uh, he's speaking specifically about the terminology used, saw, took, lay with, abused. As elsewhere in Genesis, the chain of uninterrupted verbs conveys the precipitousness of the action. Took will become another thematically loaded, reiterated term. Lay with, and this is the one I, I come attention to here, is far more brutal in the Hebrew because instead of being followed by the preposition with, as for example, in Rachel's words to Leah, it's followed by a direct object. So if the Masoretic voice, or the Masoretic vocalization which is being used here is truly authentic, then yeah, this is definitely denoting rape. Like, this is used in a very blunt, brutal, aggressive sense that suggests him taking something very clearly that didn't belong to him and in a forceful way. And this, this echoes back throughout the text. Um, back at the end, um, and this is, a whole, the phrasing is a, a real fun thing to be considered. In verse 31, uh, the brother's response, Alter parses that as, like a whore should our sister be treated. Like, the, the the aggressiveness of it. And the fact that it's not directed specifically, as some translations indicate, as, at Shechem and his dad, it's denoted at, at their father as well. Like, in, in the broad sense, should our sister be treated like this? As a fucking whore. Like, there are levels of intensity and aggression that 
to be honest, like anything involving homosexuality, is not carried over well into the English text. Uh, because English translators are kind of bullshit when it comes to stuff like this. So there's like there's a lot of that going on in th- in this text. And now I, I will say from my perspective, it is worth, I think, discussing and, you know, shameless plug, uh, my church's podcast, Back to Basics, did this extensively. It is worth discussing uh, whether the response in murdering fucking everybody was proportional or not, even in the case of a rape. Like, yes, some sort of justice is is called for, like, severe justice, certainly, but killing everybody and stealing everything is maybe not a proportional response. Uh, however, I will say on a personal note, I do love the, the just a, a personally, I love the calculatedness of, okay, no, we're not going to come right at you. We're going to make you cut your dicks off first. I appreciate that. I, I like that. It's like they, they're like me. They they didn't react aggressively knee jerk. They stopped. They thought. I said, no, no. We have an opportunity here. We we don't just have to hit them. We can make yeah. them hit themselves yeah. first. Well, and and yeah. To to go back to that point um, that you made earlier, before we laugh about about them cutting their dicks off, yeah, or the tip of their dicks, is uh, by way of analogy, if we were to translate this word directly, right? Um, better language would be like the difference between had sex with her versus he sexed her, right? Like he, he did sex to her. More along the lines of if I were, if I were to parse it thus, I would say it would be the difference between he had sex with her and he fucked her. Like the, the level of aggression that's present in that, and that utilization of the text borders on the profane. Well, the, the way she is still presented in the text is as an inanimate object. So, Of course, like, all the verbiage is going to be, like, he did this to her. Like, he took her, the object, away from the men in her family. So, like, it's it still completely vibes to me as, like, even if she, like, was into him and it wasn't rape, they would have probably perceived it as rape no matter what. Like, it's like those dads who are hyper weird about their daughters like dating like a like a high school boyfriend and like get real weird i also want to raise the point too here that like modernly too even even modernly our instinct is to read of a conception of rape and automatically assume it in terms of forceful violence but it's worth noting here that a proper definition of rape is a violation of consent and as i'll pointed out we're dealing with a woman in a situation where she was um, objectified. She, women in, in that time in general were property. They did not have agency. So whereas the ancient culture does tend to view this as a violation of property rights, it is also, there is no situation where even in which Dina perhaps even did consent, it's still a form of rape because she did not have agency within that situation to control her sexual activity. So, you know, yeah, the ancient Hebrews almost certainly began by couching this as an issue of property rights, which it is unique and I think noteworthy and the moral of the damn story that the brothers say, fuck property rights, this is our goddamn sister. Like, that motive agency is, is, in my opinion, the moral of the story. But that aside, we are dealing with a prima facie rape on the fact here that Dina did not have agency at any point in the story. So Shechem taking action, whether it was based on interest, whatever context it was based on, Shechem here is acting as a rapist because he's taking something that does not have agency. She did not have the right to say no. She did not have the right to say yes. She didn't have the right to speak about her vagina in any terms because they were all kind of squicked out by those, uh, which is weird because they're freaking awesome. Uh, big fan, big fan. Just, you know, absolutely. Um <laughs> You know, like seriously, like yeah, definitely big fan. Hmm. Here's to the vaginas. Um, <laughs> said the ordained minister on the podcast. Anyway, so that's it. Like the 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 boundary of consent being crossed here. Like there isn't a way yet, and this this gets formed in later biblical narrative where we start to conceive of the idea of a woman having consent. But at this point in the narrative. She's a fucking piece of property as far as their culture is concerned. She doesn't have the ability to consent. So in a real way, every sexual encounter in this society is a form of rape. But beyond that, 
um, in this particular case, yeah, even if Shechem was cool about it and nice about it, and she was kind of like, oh, yeah, well, it might be fun, but also, like, I have, like yeah, I'm, I'm unsure, still a violation of consent. Like, she didn't have the ability to give it. It reminds me of that meme uh, where it's, like, two people, like, are like, I consent, and I consent, and then somebody else is like, I don't. Ugh. Like, it's usually Jesus that they throw in there, like, as, like, an atheist meme, but, like, some conservative figure, or or if they're, like, poking fun at liberals, like, uh, like Joe Biden or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one thing, too, to consider here is that um, I am going to have to... I like everything you've been saying, Pastor Kuma, but I'm going to push back a little bit because uh, against the whole idea of like them caring about the fact that this was their sister. I do think this is really more of a case of the, still property, right? And the way they respond is, is that their honor has been violated, not necessarily their sister, especially given the fact that at the end of this narrative, they take the women and the children of Hamor's, you know, whole clan. Like it says the, uh, the property, the women and the children in, in that order, as though the women and the children are part of the property of Hamor and, you know, his men. To be clear and to clarify my position here, I'm not saying that Dina's brothers here had a holistic, modern, uh, 21st century metrosexual, whatever you want to call it, understanding of, you know, whatever. Um, what, I, what I'm, what, it, what, it, what it, my read here from the text is, is that this was the, oh wait, I have a sister kind of understanding of sexual and gender identity and all this other stuff. Like, right. you know, the I, 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 what you see out of conservatives all the time, where like I hate the gays except for the one gay who does my hair. Like he's <laughs> he's cool because I like him. Like that's kind of I think the mentality we're getting here, which still to be clear still sucks like the brothers aren't good people in this story uh but it's what i'm trying to identify in that is there's that slight nudge in a progressive direction that'll be paid off farther down the story as things start to roll downhill into changes of perspective and what have you until we get to today where women are treated totally like equals and everything's fine okay no ask me any questions about that um, <laughs> we beat sexism Yay! Um, so it Yay! is worth pointing out, <laughs> but it is it is worth pointing out, just to to push back on you a little bit, demo that the taking the property, children and and women, they are differentiated, right? They are different things there, and that's important because they've killed all the men, and in their culture, not having men around is a societal death, right? That, um, not that women would not be able to protect themselves, but that when this happens, when you've created widows, you now have an ethical obligation to actually help provide for them, right? Because you've eliminated their source of income. You've eliminated a lot of the ways that they're able to survive, particularly if they have small children, right? And so, you know, in as much as I, I absolutely hear what you're saying and saying they take the, they take the women as, as loot and property. I would also want to say that if they had abandoned the women and children, that would be far worse <laughs> um, because that would be subjecting them to a slow death sentence. Well, th thank God they did that one small thing after yeah, they murdered I mean, all of their husbands <laughs> and fathers. <laughs> I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that there's, there's a worse ethical choice that could be made there. <laughs> we'll get to this with Tamar, who has to turn this whole agency issue on her head just to get hers. Uh, because she was about to be fucked over in this exact way by being kind of left out in the cold because the man to whom she was uh, subjected as an as a well owned woman small uh, small correction she was about to be not fucked over and that was the problem because the Bible's fucking weird that way uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's interesting here you know talking about whether or not this story is one that is like propaganda against the people here in in this area or if it is like really casting them in as positive a light as possible, right? So a couple of things just to, to point out in this story. Shechem loved Dina, right? That is only the second time in the Bible that the word love is comes up, right? <laughs> it's the second time thus far in the Bible. The Bible is all about love, and this is the second time that it's mentioned in this case of rape, right? where he could have very true feelings for her, but those feelings can still result in very unloving situations, right? So there's that, right? First off, Shechem loved her. 
And then there is just three times over Shechem and Hamor trying to make things right. Right now, under Levitical law, right, if you rape a woman, you are then obligated to marry her and take care of her for the rest of her life. Right now, in our modern sensibilities, that is obviously cruel. What we're realizing, what we see from our perspective is that woman is a victim. You're now basically subjecting her and punishing her by making her live with her rapist for the rest of her life. That's awful. Right. But within the logic of that time period, what is an unwed mother? That's basically giving someone a death sentence, right? What is a widow is a death sentence, a social death sentence. Um, and so unwed mothers were not able to have access to a lot of the, the means of their survival. And so marriage to a rapist was better and more just than the alternative, which is dying of starvation on your own, isolated away from your society and culture, right? That's why it is so detrimental when Abraham sends off Hagar, right? That's why God has to come in as Hagar's substitute husband and Ishmael's substitute father, because it is a death sentence that Abraham is issuing against them. So all that to be said, that within the logic of the story, Shechem here is trying to make things right. Shechem is trying to say, I'll make an honest woman of Dina. You know, of course, that phraseology is also blaming Dina for something that is definitely not her fault. And, you know, and then three times over, they try to make this right. Let us, let us marry your daughters. Let your daughters marry us. Let us become one people, right? And it seems like they are really seriously trying to do that. In my mind, three times over, that seems like it is pretty definitely painting Shechem and Hamor in a pretty positive light as people who are trying to make right something that they have done wrong. And then there's this line where after the third time, they're going back to their own people to try and convince them. And in verse 23, it says their livestock, their property, and all of their animals, won't they be ours? Let's agree with them and let them live with us. And I'd be really fascinated to see what Alter has to say about that. But like this line to me very much so feels like the three times they did that before, that was all just really a scheme so we could get all the money from these, these Israelites. Yeah, the Alter points out that exactly what you just said, this may reflect a tactic of persuasion on the part of Hamor. It may equally represent the, uh, the cupidity of the Hivites as well. So like there's, there's, Multiple directions is not clear, but it could be a manipulation tactic, and Alter owns that right there in the text. What I what I want to point out too, um, and this I find interesting in my read of the text is Shechem and Hamor's response to the rape. Like uh, Alter, Alter again, and again the Hebrew points this out pretty well as well. The modality of Shechem moving into love language after having done the thing, like suggests that dude caught feelings. Okay, great, still did it. Like, but. So the, the response of Shechem and Hamor after that is to repeatedly try to fix the problem in their way. And we see this a lot with people who fuck up stuff. It's like, oh man, I, I, I got to fix that. Here's how I am going to fix that. And at no point is it asked, damn, Dina, I done, I done fucked you over. How can I make this right to you? Like, there, there is... Uh, an, an, an attempt at, re at reparation without consent is not actually a good thing. And that's what they're doing here. They're attempting to fix it, but they still haven't grasped the fundamental issue. You didn't get consent. You didn't get consent to take it. You didn't get consent to fix having taken it. Uh, at no point did you consider the agency and consent of the people involved, whether it be Dina as a woman or whether it be the larger family that you're trying to make reconciliation to, you came in here to say how you were going to fix it, to make your suggestion and actualize your agency rather than coming in humility as one who has sinned ought to say, I have screwed up. I am sorry. Tell me what must be done to make it up to you. And that would have been the right and godly action here, but they didn't. And so then we get farther on and that, well, it could be a manipulation tactic, possibly, or it could be they're just assholes. Like, <laughs> that's, that is often the, the calculus of reading the Bible is, is it a tactic or they're just dicks? Could be either. <laughs> but yeah, like the fundamental failure here, and this is the sermon I would preach if I were preaching on the first half of this, of this is the necessity of consent in apology and not, not just the necessity of consent in you know, not raping people. I think we all kind of generally get that one, uh, <laughs> except for rapists. And, you know, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs>
I know we've got vastly different interpretations of this text, but the line, if you approve of me, tell tell me what you want and I will give it to you. Like that to me, like says, like, I will do anything and give you anything to make this right. And I do think the attempts are genuine. And I think this is more of like the pre-Israelites like perceiving in verse 23 like their livestock their property and all of their animals won't they be ours vibes very much as like the sort of panic that the elites have like there's examples of this in like ancient rome there's examples of it in xenophobic white people in the modern times but like just all these concerns with race mixing and like integrating into different cultures like, oh, they just want to take all of our stuff. Like, and they already have by taking our daughters. Ah. To be fair, verse 23 is supposedly spoken by Hamor. Um, it's supposedly, but he didn't write this. That's true. I, I do want to throw out as well. Um, and you mentioned uh, was it verse 12 here where Shechem said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor with you. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Yeah, you're right that he throws himself out in humility there. But as, as I often tell people, what do they say next? Put the marriage present and gift as high as you like, and I will give whatever you ask of me. Only give the young woman to be my wife. Like, I'll do whatever you want within the bounds of the, of the structure I have established as the way I'm going to respond to this. Well, the, the bride price is a very, very, like, that was the standard, though, for most Middle Eastern tribes and tribes across, like, vast swaths of Europe and Africa, and, like, when women are considered property, bride price is pretty standard. I think the area of disagreement there is not over the bride price. It's that, like, tell me what you want if you'll give me what I want, right, is yeah. where Don is precisely. Yeah, he, he, he had already entered into that as, I'm going to fix this problem by claiming her as my wife and doing whatever I can to get her, and not by making up to it in whatever way that family sees fit. Um, which, setting aside the consent issue for a moment, which of course you never should, he's addressing this as a property dispute and a case of stolen property, for lack of a better term. And he says, okay, well, I broke it, so I'm going to buy it. And not like, I broke it, I'm going to pay reparations to the company. I broke it, I'm going to address this in whatever legal way they find appropriate. No, I, I, I broke it, I'm going to buy it. And he, he is determined the scope in which he is going to address it, and now they're just haggling over price, which again is normal. But my point was that maybe he, he missed a step here. Maybe it would have been more appropriate for him to actually approach in humility, admit that he had done a wrong, because he's still trying to hide the fact that he did the thing. He's not being super clear about, oh, yeah, I definitely raped her, so now I want to buy her. Uh, he's, it, it's presented almost as if I raped her and I would like to buy her before you find that out. What I love about this show, right, is that we constantly have multiple perspectives and different interpretations of the story, mm. right? And I think that both of those interpretations are really good and really deep readings of this text, right? The reading on the one hand that Dina is raped and like couldn't consent in any way in this culture to this relationship, that Shechem is basically trying to make up for something that he already has his mind set on, which is marrying her, you know, all, all those sort of things. I think that that is a good reading of the text. I also love this alternative reading of the text where like within the story, we don't know what Dina actually decides. Maybe Dina did love Shechem. And rather than that being a possibility and allowing for Shechem and Hamor and the Hivites to actually have a relationship and build that relationship, the brothers, specifically Simeon and Levi, are so incensed at the threat against their own masculinity, right? Because the violation of women's dignity is a reflectionist time period, and still very often in our time period, is not a violation. The fact that it happened to a woman doesn't actually matter, according to people who think this way, right? What actually it was is a violation of my dignity as a man, right? Um, and so, like, I think both of those interpretations can, can coexist here, and we can take both of them out and say, what do we learn about these different things, looking at the Bible from these different perspectives? And that's why we have different perspectives to read the Bible. And that's why we critique the Bible, <laughs> because both of those things have things to read. And so I don't want anyone who's listening along to say, I have to choose, you know, who, which side of these is right. 
um, I think that both of them are really good readings and worth investigating in the text. You know, to to be clear to to in particular to L as well, because I don't want you to feel that I'm trying to pick a fight or argue with you or say that your position is invalid. I, I do not want you to feel that way at all. I. I'll get a little personal here for a second. I always, almost always, ride hard for a reading of the Bible in which everybody presumed to have a penis is an asshole. (laughs) Um, And a a large part of that is contextual. A large part of that is historical. But if there's a debate between this guy was acting like a pretty decent dude and, well, maybe he was actually acting like an asshole, I'll usually side on the latter of that predominantly because most of my community and the community that I serve as pastor are victims of some kind of patriarchal or male-led violence, whether it's social or all too physical. And in my the circles in which I run, people need to hear people who look and sound like me standing up and saying, no, people in the Bible were just dicks. Like that is a necessary message for a lot of people. And so when I'm writing for that, and again, I address this to you in particular, L. I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to override your interpretation at all. Uh, in in my presentations, a lot of what I'm writing for is for a lot of the people that I know personally that need to hear this interpretation, but that does not make yours invalid. And I want to be clear about that. Well, as a victim of patriarchal abuse myself, I, I think also victims of patriarchal abuse need to hear the, the version that recognizes like some of these attitudes in Simon and Levi's like response, like echoed in our own, uh, family lives, in our own experiences. Like if you come from a family with prejudices in it and you're, assigned female at birth and you've got assigned males at birth uh brothers who like really like to live up to that then you might experience not something on the scale of this but something similar you know like like both are valid and i don't i don't feel like you know you're trying to talk over Mm -hmm. it or try to invalidate mine i'll even go one farther and say that in the broader scheme of anti-patriarchal theology, for lack of a better or at least more terse term, I think that it's important for voices like yours to be the ones that are advocating a more merciful reading of the men in the story. And it's important for voices like mine to be the ones that are saying, oh, fuck them. <laughs> like, I, I, I think if it were reversed, we would have problems. See, I'm I'm still saying fuck them, but I'm saying fuck them to Jacob and his sons. Be- because Looking into the history, like, of the United States and, you know, the Mann Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, like, plenty of other, like, anti-immigration acts, their first, like, the first, like, stirrings of these acts coming to pass are fears about white women being violated, even if those relationships were consensual. It's always like, oh, like, we don't even, we we don't want that either, you know? My reading is specifically, like, to also, like, echo, like, what I see going on, like, like, today through a leftist lens, so. And, and it's worth also saying, like, it's not as if those things are just in the past, right? You alluded to the ways that that's still happening today, but the QAnon panic is very much so a, Mm -hmm. like, a, a concern about the innocence of women and, you know, the, the idea that sex trafficking is happening at such a higher rate that they actually ignore all actual sex trafficking victims and don't do anything to help people who are actually stuck in sex trafficking. And, and like all the, all the stuff that's like quote unquote helping sex trafficking victims doesn't, it actually just makes it more dangerous for anybody to engage in sex work for their livelihoods. I'd like to come back to this notion of you know Dinah as somebody who doesn't have agency because mm-hmm. I think no matter which interpretation we go with and maybe there's other interpretations but I don't think there's an honest interpretation of this story that doesn't involve somebody somewhere being very much a supporter of the patriarchy and stripping Dinah of any agency that she does mm-hmm. have whether or not she tries to reclaim her agency and we don't know if she does in this story well, that's there it is. We don't know if she ever t- attempts to even, you know, voice her opinion or say, yes, Shechem, I want this. No, Shechem, I don't want this. You know, we never, we never hear from her. And so whether she would have consented, like if, you know, the, ta- the tables were more level and, you know, maybe she, and maybe she was allowed to exert her own personhood. We, we don't know. 
I think the lesson here is, you know, this is just what happens when, when you take someone's agency from someone, violence is guaranteed to follow. You know, whether that be the violence of rape or the violence of people responding to, you know, their dignity, you know, rather than the humanity of those who have been hurt and wronged. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, in the interests of fully affirming and supporting the, that take on it, the idea that we can't really tell where Dita's agency was in the whole thing and what she may or may not have done. In the interest of supporting that perspective, as the composer of the theme song for this podcast, I am going to give my blanket permission for this episode to replace the theme for this one episode with Baby It's Cold Outside, because it seems appropriate. <laughs> and, and it's tis the season when we're recording this, at least. Yep. <laughs> Well, and feel free to explain that joke to, to people, because nothing is funnier than when you explain oh, that joke. Yeah, I, I, I'd be surprised if people haven't read that. As a, it's one of the big meta jokes, is that if, if read literally, the, the lyrics of Baby It's Cold Outside seem like, that guy's trying to do a fucking rape. And if you read it within the context of the time, it's a complex series of social negotiations by which a woman is attempting to demonstrate agency using particular expressions that were common at the time to skirt around patriarchal restrictions that were built into the society in those days. So, in like, it's actually a song about consent, but nowadays it reads like a song of rape, so people are arguing about it every single goddamn year that it comes out. <laughs> I like it, personally. So, I... I, I find it charming. I, I, I know the, that it's, you know, a, a story of consent disguised as a story of not, but I, I like it. I like it. I, like, problematic fave time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not exactly problematic if you have the media literacy to understand it. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. It's still creepy. It's still a creepy song. <laughs> It ends with it ends with people having apparently consexual sex. I'm okay with that. I like that. That just makes it a worthwhile song. I, I think more songs should end with people having consexual sex. Could you imagine how awesome our hymns would be if, like, we finished "Holy, Holy, Holy" with an orgy or something? Like, it'd be weird, <laughs> but it'd be a much more interesting experience. We we really need to we need really need to base more hymns off of the Song of Solomon. I mean. I I do unironically believe that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, God, like there's a whole book of about sex in the Bible. Why isn't it also in our hymnature? I why, mean, like why is it not the thing that we're reading every time somebody gets married? Like Personally, I just want to hear back that ass up on an organ, but you know, let's go with whatever we want. It, it all stems from like from Christianity's strange, uh, at times contradictory aversion to the flesh, despite the fact that we literally believe in an embodied God, we're at, at least at some point, regardless regardless of where you stand, at some point, God had a body. And so I think the aversion to the flesh is certainly not without precedent in the, the, the New Testament, but I think it's a little bit of a strange holdover from, from our Neoplatonic roots. God's first act of creation that involved us as humans was to grab that ephemeral concept of a spirit and jam it into a fleshy body and say, here you go, that's yours, play with it and have fun. It's good. <laughs> and then we spent the entire remaining hundreds of thousands of years saying, it's not good. It's not good. What the hell? I, I just think Christianity's problem is a like even straight people think straight sex is kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> like that's their problem. <laughs> Look, as I often tell people during relationship and marriage counseling, it is the will of our Lord Jesus Christ that you get fucking freaky with it. Get weird. Have fun. <laughs> and the only reason the only reason we are told to get married as Christians in the Bible is if you're horny. So, like, you should you should be doing it. Notwithstanding Paul, who was a weirdo, by the way. No, that is that is Paul. Paul's one instruction. I on know it's married. Paul. <laughs> yeah, I. I I, I tend to be a little more Old Testament and or Jesus with that, which is fuck around and find out. Both are fun. <laughs> I, I very much so a Saga Solomon ethic, which is very, very queer. And uh, it is you really have to bend over backwards with how you read that that text to think that it's not queer. So <laughs> the last thing that I really wanted to bring up as a, as a point is that this story, like so many stories in the Bible, is a cycle, right? Where it starts off with someone wielding a sword, right? In this case, Shechem wielding a sword that's attached to him. And it ends with Simeon and Levi 
taking their swords, right? And violating the city, right? In this way, going in and killing all the males. First disabling them by getting them to ha- to be circumcised and then going in and doing it. And so, like, that just highlights to me the fact that whatever else, wh- whichever interpretation we take here, Dina has no agency at all. Like, she is not a part of the story. She's just an object in this story, right? And that strikes me as the the definition of the sin of seeing that Jesus calls adultery, right? That if we are only seeing Dina for the object that she is, the, the sexual object that she that she was to Shechem, then we have failed to love, right? We have failed to love. And so often, like, that verse can be taken to mean all sorts of things, like that if you find someone attractive that you're committing adultery, um, which is... Certainly not what Jesus meant, <laughs> but but here that objectification, that way in which Dina is just not a human. She doesn't have agency. She doesn't have a role here. She doesn't even speak in the entire story. Is a way that this that this text is sinning against her, right? And the Bible is sinning against Dina in this way. Which is why we don't just read the Bible and say, oh, look at that. Look at how great that is, right? We read it in this critical way, right? And Don was representing very well that, you know, reading the Bible and assuming exactly what it says is accurate gets us to one thing. Reading the text from a from a lens of suspicion like Elle was doing gets us to another interpretation. But we're working from the same facts here, that, that Dina is fundamentally not a character in the story in the way that she really deserves to be. And so... If you are someone who believes in a literal heaven, uh, like I do, where we're going to go and be able to hang out with all the people, I would love to eventually go and sit down with Dina and just hear her story and hear from her what happened and what kind of pain she went through, because she deserves to, to have that story shared from her own perspective as well. In the end, the uh, the moral of the story, if we have to land on a particular moral, is this. If you violate the agency of a woman, you and everybody who looks like you gets your dick tips chopped off. <laughs> End of story. I do think it's interesting to to be funny here for a second. Is it just me, or has every single pot episode I've been on so far, it always comes back to penises? Like we we just can't es- escape the phallus. Like the the Bible is very phallic. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of like uh, I mean Abraham. There's a lot with him. Like a lot, a lot. We keep coming back to circumcised hearts and circumcised penises and circumcised everything else. It. We just can't get away from it. Uh, the The Tower of Babel is a big penis reaching into the sky. Like it's all it's all penises all the way down. Yeah, you know, uh, in, in terms of of shameless plugging, my church has its own spring store with T shirts and stuff. And our very first one was about Abraham and his dick. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> Taking a more serious direction, though, I do want to briefly touch on how violence done in the name of revenge brings about more violence, right? Hmm. Because there's this moment where Jacob says, you've put me in danger by making me offensive to those who live here in the land, to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. I have only a few men. They may join forces, attack me and destroy me, me and my household. In doing this, in taking revenge, the Uh cycle of violence has continued, right? Whatever we may think about Hamor's intentions and whether or not he was acting honestly or not, at least he was offering a way forward that didn't involve more death and destruction and violence. But mm. here, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily opposed to violence, but you know, I'd, I'd like to talk about that and when and if ju- violence is ever justified. But at least here, when we see that when violence is enact, enacted as a way to punish the unworthy, to punish those who we feel deserve it, we, we aren't healing. We aren't, fixing we aren't moving past the hurt that uh the heart of things we're just perpetuating more hurt lama you remember the post that got me on your radar was actually about this my conception that focusing on justice as something that is about people getting what they deserve leads to more hurt and more reenactment of the injustices that uh, our current world is based on rather than moving to a model of asking what is needed, what do all the parties involved here need in order to heal the world's wounds and not how do I feel they should be treated, but 
how do they need to be treated? I think one very important lesson we can take here is just how, you know, the cycle of violence perpetuates itself in the language of who deserves how much punishment. It's revenge and restorative justice, like the difference between those. Exactly. Having said all of that, I'm going to go ahead and point out the thing that I, I can't believe it, nobody's mentioned so far. Has anybody realized yet that Genesis chapter 34 is basically, in terms of thought experiments and general plotline, it's basically the prototype for the Boondock Saints? Like that's literally exactly what's happening here. This is ancient Israeli Boondock Saints. And we have the same arguments about it that we all did in college. Like, were they right to kill the people for doing the killing and the pay? They're only killing bad people, so it's okay. And like, it's the exact same thought experiment that we all went through while drunk and or stoned in college is <laughs> the, the slow creeping realization that, yeah, that's righteous. So, <laughs> well, and it comes back to the fact that like justice carried out by unjust people is not going to result in justice, right? That, that, the idea that the state has the power to kill someone else when the state doesn't have the legitimacy to kill anyone in the first place. Like the, the state has done all these wrong things. The idea that I have the right to go out and punish someone else because they've done something bad, right? It misses the fact that something bad was done to them in almost all cases, right? There's that fantastic quote that to understand someone is to forgive them, right? is to see the ways in which they have been damaged, the ways they have been hurt, the ways in which they are a nuanced, full human being who has pain and suffering and is now turning around that pain and suffering and enacting it on other people, right, leads us down this path where there is no true justice unless justice is accompanied by mercy. And that is why the, the words in Hebrew are so associated, justice and mercy, that there is no justice without mercy and there is no mercy without justice because people need to be held accountable but most of the time that accountability has to include recognition that they are human and all of us are human and all of us stand in need of both mercy and justice pretty much all of the time since we are a christian podcast it's interesting to me how christ in the way he acts throughout the the new testament is to claim justice for himself Right. He claims justice and judgment for himself. He says, I will be the one to judge. Uh, let those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. And therefore, you know, our response is to not judge. Right. We, we, we don't have any ground to stand upon with which to enact judgment or, you know, punishment. Right. But then I think interestingly, Christ in a rather unexpected move, you know, he claims justice for himself. He claims the right to punish those who are unworthy to himself. And then pretty much he never uses it. He uses this right he's been given to hurt, to continue the world, the, the suffering in the world. He uses that to heal it instead. I'm just reminded of, you know, the woman taken in adultery. I think that's the proper response to this, you know, to take the hurt that you know thing that we know is bad and wrong and to you know turn it on its head i guess to respond with love to that which was done without love and i think if nothing else this this story that we're reading right here is a pretty good object lesson on what not to do so hooray for that i think that my big takeaway from here is just a reminder that dina had no agency in the scenario right and so justice what would justice have looked like in the scenario well we should ask dina right we should ask the victim here, what do you need to, to be able to be made whole again, right? To, to be able to cover up this pain that you faced, this, this humiliation that you faced. Even if it was a consensual relationship, Dina is still harmed by the, by the humiliation that she faces, right? Because in, in a culture like this, that's not allowed, right? And so we have to ask Dina, how do you want this to be made right? And I think in those scenarios, you know, we need to listen and also apply justice and mercy, right? That doesn't mean that Dina needs to ever see Shechem again. That doesn't mean that we need to trust Shechem alone with our kids or our wives or our friends or our daughters or, or anybody else. It means that we can have reasonable boundaries and all those sorts of things, but that Shechem doesn't need to be left outside for all of time, right? That we can have justice and protect the people who are vulnerable and have mercy, even for people who don't deserve it. 
because ultimately in the end, none of us deserve the mercy that we receive. It is just love, and love is more important than the rest. Shechem's not going to be able to become better if we don't love him first. Yeah, absolutely. Or or if you kill him and his entire town. Yes. <laughs> or if you chop off their penises. Um, so... <laughs> That that was that was them though. That was them. That was true. They they did that themselves. <laughs> they they did that to try to become like a part of the culture. Like they were trying to assimilate. Like I yeah. It's it's why the disproportion of violence like gets me so badly. Like yeah. Like like that. Like cutting off a piece of your dick just so you could have some of their property. Like I think they wanted like a genuine relationship with this people and building a new people because like they saw a future together what we're hearing is what we're hearing then is that in in the in the story of the bible uh people with a a mind towards responding to the injustices of patriarchy are actually just trying to emasculate us and immigrate is that the conservative reading of this text Yes, uh, trying to emasculate you, and they're going to take your jobs. And your livestock. And your your women who are property, especially the daughters. They're going to take your women and make everybody transgendered. Oh, God. Okay, I think... I think we've landed on the true interpretation. We can all go home. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Al, I think that that point was was really the most salient <laughs> of, of everything that we've said today. Is if you're willing to get circumcised to to have these people as neighbors, you have to be pretty damn serious about actually wanting to be their right. neighbor. <laughs> so, <laughs> never mind. Sorry, Don. Our our interpretation totally wrong. L wins. L is the only one who's right here. <laughs> Amen. As Amen. it should be. <laughs> All right, friends. Thank y'all so much for being a part of this podcast. I so appreciate you, Demo, L, and Don, once again for having a wonderful conversation. And you, dear listener, who have been a part of this program and are just continuing to allow us to grow and reach new people and have wonderful new hosts and all sorts of things. So thank you all for everything that you do, especially for your for your contributions on the Patreon and for your wonderful reviews and the fact that you're like posting about this on random social media that I've never seen before <laughs> and building our community that way. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, Pass Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, Future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, Past Micah. Now go and listen to the victims of injustice so that together we can enact justice and mercy for all. Shalom. Shalom.